0: Hello, my name is Dr. Kim Farina. I'm a veterinarian and I'm the host of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, provided to you by Zoetis. Welcome to season eight. Season eight is great, no doubt about it. As always, we will explore a variety of topics that will help you succeed in veterinary medicine. We will also continue to focus on corporate veterinary practice, so, for veterinarians who work in these groups, this will be super helpful. Season 8 has four episodes that take a deep dive into the different types of veterinary care models. We'll explore everything from value based care to whole health care. Now, maybe you're thinking models? What's practical? or clinical about models. Well, I can tell you right now, it's really good and it's really important. So you're not going to want to miss it. As pet ownership continues upward and professional well-being remains top of mind, different veterinary models are essential to understand so we can help animals that need our care. In today's episode, we will look at the expanding access to care model. Pet ownership is at an all-time high and many owners just can't afford basic care. So, we have to find a solution. Our guest today is the president of PetSmart Charities, Amy Gilbreth. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you.
0: All right. So, tell us about yourself and how you became interested in PetSmart Charities.
1: Oh, well, I have had a bit of a zigzaggy career. So I started out wanting to be a veterinarian, actually, when I was a tween and a teen. And then my parents got very smart and sent me on a ride along with our large animal vet because we had horses at the time. And I very quickly realized from spending the day with her that it was a much more physical job than I had given it credit for. And so I fell out of love with that career path and ended up being a biologist and then a consultant, and then came back unexpectedly to my love of animals in helping start a nonprofit foundation in Los Angeles. I did that for almost 13 years. And we had a sheltering operation that we ran. We ran and funded spay-neuter clinics. We had um, a pet store that we used the funds from to help offset other things. We even dabbled in research for non-surgical sterilants. And after that, I got recruited to come take the role at PetSmart Charities about a year and a half ago, which was a bit full circle because one of my first mentors in the animal welfare space, when I didn't really know what I was doing, was a former president of PetSmart Charities. So I'm thrilled to be here and to get to use the resources that Charities has as the largest funder in animal welfare to tackle problems like access to veterinary care.
0: Wow, that's fabulous. So as president of PetSmart Charities, you have this incredible vantage point to the state of affairs of pet ownership. You know, more than half of dogs and cats in the U.S. don't receive adequate veterinary care. But I think you know, I think first we actually have to define what is adequate veterinary care.
1: There's not an agreed upon definition. Like many things in this field, we don't always have all of exactly the data we'd like to define this problem or the terminology or the models that we'd like to figure out how to solve it. So I will give you the, the definition of adequate care that we are using at charities, and it's informed by the levels of care that we think that pets currently get. So as you mentioned, a lot of pets get no care. Tens of millions get no care. And then another group of pets get minimal care. And when I say minimal care, I mean things like perhaps they visit a shot clinic and get their first round of shots, or they get spayed or neutered. But they're not going in for that annual checkup. They are not getting regular dentals. And they're not accessing the kind of chronic care or emergency care that they might need. And so I think everyone can agree that that's not adequate. But then the question of what exactly is adequate, it's probably somewhere in the range that we might currently call incremental, where people are able to access some basic wellness care and consistent wellness care. But they probably um, adequate is certainly not as we define it, gold standard care. Because the reality we believe is that only about 15% of pets right now are getting gold standard care. And many, many, many pets, while they might be able to work their way into adequate care, it would be tough to provide that gold standard care across the board.
0: Got it. So, so let's, you know, who are these pet owners that we're talking about when we're talking about this type of care?
1: Yeah, this has been a really interesting journey, even for me, because I know that the way that I grew up in a very upper upper middle class household, I had a certain picture of what poverty meant or what it meant to struggle financially. And as I have become an adult and as I have worked for the last 15 years in the nonprofit space, I've really had to question and redefine all of my assumptions. And so, first, just a, a bit of a demographic breakdown of where we are in the United States. In the United States, about half of households and about half of households that have pets have a household income of less than $55,000 a year. And then fully a third of pets live in households where the household income is less than $35,000 per year. And I had to do the exercise myself to really think about, okay, well, what does it mean to live on $55,000 a year? After taxes, how much do you take home a month? And, And based on average rent, how much are you paying for housing? And then add on things like food and a car and insurance and health care, and let alone if you have um, a child and you need to pay for childcare and diapers and formula. And very quickly, you come to realize that at a household income of $55,000 a year, if you're a single person, that might be very doable, if not comfortable or luxurious. But once you start having to support multiple people on that income, let alone something more like $35,000 a year, it's really easy to see why extra expenses or unexpected expenses like car repair or veterinary bills become very difficult to manage. And in terms of understanding what kinds of folks are at that income level, I mean, firstly, I think it's helpful to think about half the country probably has a household income that makes it difficult to afford the kind of veterinary care they might really want for their pets. But that $55,000 a year household income, that translates to $26 an hour. So you would be working full-time at $26 an hour, and that would be your household income. The minimum wage that everyone is sort of headed to at $15 an hour, that would translate to $31,000 a year for your household. So a lot of these folks are working And they're working in jobs that you see every day. They're working in grocery stores. They're working in restaurants. They are even working as veterinary technicians. in a lot of practices, and particularly for us in the animal welfare space, uh, essentially all of our veterinary technicians in in our shelters and rescue groups are, are in that income range. If they are a retiree who is living primarily on a social security benefit, they would be in sort of the lower part of that income range. So it's millions and millions and millions of people who work very hard, are fantastic folks, and certainly love their pets and benefit from the companionship of their pets.
0: Yeah. And this is this is huge, Amy, because I don't think many people myself, have broken it down to actually, like, that's amazing when you're talking about $26 an hour. And, and as we talk about minimum wage, even less than that, and the unexpected expenses. And once you take out all that, you know, the basic needs, what do you have left? Not much, if anything. Especially not if you are a single parent
1: or if you are a single income household. And of course, our friendly neighborhood COVID-19 pandemic has not helped a lot of folks. So I think that, that the current numbers, you know, of course, we go off of census data and survey data, but even more recently, as, and as prices are going up for things like gas and food and cars, the picture is not getting any better.
0: Yeah. Right, right. So you presented this concept of spectrum of care at the recent Veterinary Innovation Summit. Give us an idea of how it's defined. Okay, well firstly, I cannot take credit for
1: spectrum of care, it's been out there. And like many other things here, it's um, not something that has a common definition. So I'm gonna represent a definition based on what we're using internally. And it is really informed by a great article, a viewpoint article that came out in JAVMA in September of 21 from Rustin Moore and the team at the Ohio State University Veterinary College. And so it talks about providing a range of options for any given treatment and being in conversation with that pet parent about the likely risks and benefits and outcomes and the progression of the patient's care based on those choices. And of course, um, ability to pay is one of the factors that would define which options a pet parent might pick. And very importantly, I believe that lots of practices are already doing this. He gives a fantastic example in the paper of saying, okay, vomiting in dogs. Your dog starts vomiting, and that could be a very minor and self-limiting issue, or it could be something very serious. Um, if you were to bring a middle-aged dog into a tertiary care facility and say, hey, my, my dog's been vomiting for several days, what that is that facility is likely to recommend is they're likely going to want to do a wide range of diagnostics and imaging and probably inpatient IV fluids. And that gets very expensive very quickly. And as we just discussed, that is so out of reach for many pet owners. And and that, just that first sort of 24 hours of diagnostics, imaging, and fluids doesn't get you to the solution if it is in fact an obstruction or something of that nature. So then he suggests, okay, well, that's not the only option. You could also do a a more limited set of diagnostics to try and rule in and rule out some very specific things, give subcutaneous fluids, wait 24 hours and see what happens. Or if a pet parent can't even do that, you could Give subcutaneous fluids and send them home with very specific instructions about, hey, a limited diet, ice chips for 24 hours, et cetera, and then wait and see. Again, in either of those cases where you're doing the more limited scope to start with, that may not solve the issue, but it might, and it's a a manageable place to start. But it, it really, Spectrum of Care at its core relies on that very transparent communications between veterinarians and pet owners, which can sometimes be challenging. I know I've been in the situation as as a pet parent where I've been having a conversation and having care recommended for one of my animals. And I think I'm a more informed consumer of veterinary services than a lot of people. And it's confusing and hard to understand for me. And so I think that that's something that a lot of us experience.
0: Yeah, yes. I think what you've just laid out is so logical. It makes so much sense. I'm wondering, is there ever a judgment problem that comes in that makes communicating, you know, talking about this with a pet parent difficult? Like, do we come with our own prejudices that make this harder than it actually needs to be? I'm sure I, we're all humans and we all have our, our lens
1: and I cannot and, and I, I won't speak for veterinarians, but I know even in my business around uh, sheltering and, and animal welfare. I notice sometimes that in the spaces that I live in every day where I know the data and I know the concepts and I understand the programs very, very well, I sometimes forget when I'm talking to someone who does not live it every day that they're not going to know that. And I'm going to have to explain a lot of things and it's going to take them some time and that their initial engagement with the subject is not going to be at the same level of understanding and that that's not a fair expectation to have. And so I think for veterinarians who practice medicine all day long every day after having gone to years of vet school, yeah, you, you might assume that all pet owner owners should know X or that pet owners who care about their pets should be doing Y. It's just not yeah. the case. A lot of people haven't had right. access to vets in their community for whatever reason or have felt that it's out of their reach. And so they just don't come in with the same basic understanding that we might want them to
0: right right i totally understand so is there evidence because again this sounds great and awesome is there evidence that this model works and 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 you know when you answer that do you have real life examples of this new type of model working
1: Yes, so I also want to be careful here about evidence. And I think I was a little bit naive as we've been going through a strategy refinement at PetSmart Charities and figuring out how we want to play in access to care. We've played in access to care for, gosh, 15 to 20 years. What it initially looked like was that Charities was one of the anchor funders around massively expanding the high quality, high volume spay neuter capacity in this country. So we've been giving grants to to help stand up clinics And those clinics have gone from being high quality, high volume spay neuter to then some of them adding vaccines and basic wellness, again, targeted at this population that has trouble accessing traditional veterinary care. And so we've seen evidence of it working in in those models in a lot of ways. But I really thought coming into this that there must be an evidence base for gold standard care that that. It couldn't become gold standard care unless there was evidence that this level of treatment and investment of resources gave better outcomes. And I have come to learn that that is not always the case. So how we use the term evidence and what that means in different contexts. So I have a lot of anecdotal evidence from um, groups in Los Angeles who uh, have high-volume spay neuter clinics and see pyometra patients. And pyometra is another one of those things that I think if you go to an emergency hospital, or a full service practice and your dog gets diagnosed with pyometra that what is considered standard of care or gold standard care is very expensive inpatient IV fluids, IV antibiotics, spay surgery. And so these clinics in LA get referred patients who can't afford that. And because of the way their model is set up, they don't do anything inpatient. They don't keep any animals overnight and they want to give these pets a chance. And so they spay them and send them home with oral antibiotics and do follow-ups, and they get great outcomes. They're not doing a study on it to publish a paper, but their morbidity and mortality rates at those clinics are fantastic, um, and they don't lose a lot of pyometra patients. So we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that this model works in various practices.
0: Yeah, that's that's fabulous. That is absolutely fantastic. So let's take this another level down. Like, how do we put this spectrum of care model into veterinary practice, like in a practice?
1: Great question. Well, I, the first thing that that we have on our mind, and we would love to develop some case studies on this is again, I'm convinced that a lot of veterinarians, maybe particularly veterinarians who've been around for a few decades are already doing this because they started practicing in an era where you didn't have the orthopedic surgery options that you have now, or you didn't have the cancer treatment options that you have now. And so they, I think, have seen a wider spectrum of things work and then also you you have practices in parts of the country or in in areas where the average income of their clients dictates that they can't always do the inpatient all the diagnostics option so i think that a lot of vets are already doing this but maybe not necessarily talking about it or articulating it in quite the same way and i think it would be worth learning more about how that's going. But then we're also seeing models pop up. Again, I'll use an Arizona example. There is um, an organization here, it's a for-profit model. It's called Pet Dental USA. And they essentially are building high volume dental-focused clinics. And because they are building high volume dental-focused clinics, their prices for dentals are much lower Than what you would find in most practices and access to affordable dental care is a huge access to care barrier and we know that it leads to all kinds of other you know infections and abscesses and then other problems when pets don't get regular dental care, but the cost of a dental is prohibitive to a lot of folks so they're schooling up this model it's for profit it's definitely no frills, but it's more affordable, so it doesn't even have to always be a nonprofit model to be spectrum of care. So I think we have a lot of opportunities in a whole variety of ways to start putting this into practice. And there are probably some that we haven't even thought of yet. If people have ideas, I would love to hear them. (laughs)
0: Well, I do think, yes, there's a lot of opportunity. So let's actually talk about the economics of this. What does an annual veterinary spend look like for different levels of care? You know, we we were just talking about the dentals. Yes. So I don't have it broken out at that level of detail. But when we looked at
1: the whole market and we broke down animals into segments, so the animals that are getting gold standard care, the animals that are getting incremental care, the animals that are getting minimal care, and the animals that are getting no care. If you're getting no care, you're not spending money. So that's not on the map. The animals getting this, call it 30% of animals getting minimal care, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of total veterinary spend. The majority of the spend is in that incremental care bucket, but that's also the most animals that are receiving care. And then disproportionately, those 15% of animals that are getting gold standard care are disproportionate in terms of the veterinary spend. And when you look at um, the totals, it is a really, uh, it's a really big number. If we were to try to take all of those animals that aren't getting what we would call adequate care in the current system, if we were to try to bring them up to adequate care in the current system, it's a really daunting, scary number.
0: I wanna talk about shelter medicine. So we've gone from having not enough homes for pets in shelters to now, not enough resources to care for all those newly adopted pets. What do you think of this shift? And and I mean, do you think we're going to find a balance here? Oh, so my take on this
1: is not that there has been a shift so much, but that when shelter intake numbers were higher, and we've done a great job, like the period from 2014 to 2019 before the pandemic came along. We made so much progress in the animal welfare industry, lowering shelter intake and lowering euthanasia. So now we're down to well less than a million animals unnecessarily euthanized each year. And because of that, and that's because of some of the great investments in spay and neuter and and the public campaigns about adopt, don't shop. Now we have the luxury, if you will, of looking at other categories of at-risk animals. They've always been there. So the animals that can't afford veterinary care have always been there. I don't know in what proportion or if that's grown or shrunk pre-pandemic, but for all of us in animal welfare, up until the last few years, we were so focused on the animals needlessly dying in shelters that we weren't really looking out in the community at the animals who never touched the shelter system. And the majority of animals never touched the shelter system. Again, some numbers, depending on which survey and what data, let's just say round figures if there are about 150 million dogs and cats in U.S. homes, we're at the point where 5 million or less enter the shelter each year. So it's a really small percentage of the total pet population that ever touches the shelter. And there are a lot of at-risk pets that have always operated outside of the shelter system. It's just now we're able to turn our attention there because the situation in shelters in most of the country is not so dire. To be clear, shelters still need help. There are still shelters who are overwhelmed. But overall, big picture, we're so much better off than we were. And really, again, in the category of scary, we now know that a lot of the animal welfare issues are driven by poverty. They're really people problems. And poverty is a huge challenge. And so when we talk about solving access to care, it really is very tied to poverty and animal welfare does not have the resources alone to solve poverty and to make sure that every animal gets adequate care. Even if we put all of the stakeholders together, we may not have the resources to do that, but we can start chipping away at it. And and that's our plan at charities for what we're going to do over the next few years.
0: Right. Solving poverty. And, and again, I, I think this has been so enlightening because you don't necessarily make those connections if, if your just head is totally like veterinary medicine and animals, you know, it's like you almost forget about the people part. So this is, this is amazing our charities, gives an abundance of grant money to rescue organizations. But let's look at this from a different angle. So Amy, why don't we just continue to subsidize care for pets whose owners can't afford to pay for the care? I wish it were that easy.
1: The challenge, <laughs> as I alluded to a little bit earlier, is it is such a big gap that we don't have yep. the money. So our estimates, and these are back of the envelope, but our estimates are to take all the pets that are currently not getting adequate care. And to bring them up to adequate care, you would need $20 billion every year. And we are the biggest funder in animal welfare, but our annual grant budget, which we split amongst multiple programs, is $50 million. If you added up the annual grant budget of all the animal welfare funders, it's maybe generously $125 million dollars. So we have an order of magnitude, a multiple order of magnitude problem (laughs) difference between the grant funding that's available to subsidize and the need. And I've been in this field for a long time. And so I I sort of knew that, or I guess I should have been able to put that together. But as we went through our strategy refinement exercise, and we really got this down on paper and started thinking about it, that's the moment that had me realize that we we are not going to be able to solve this by just subsidizing care in the current system. To be clear, there will be all always be people who need subsidized care. But we have to come up with innovative practice models and programs that allow those subsidy dollars to go further and put direct access to care in the reach of more people if we want to really make a difference for the tens of millions of pets that are currently left out of the system.
0: Oh, that is mind-blowing. Yeah. It's impossible. I see. I makes perfect sense. So, you mentioned models and, and you know, thinking like we got to think outside the box for this and so forth. Like, could a new practice model solve for this? And, and, and really, you know, how would that model be different from the models that already exist? I think that probably a lot of new practice models could
1: come out of this and some for-profit mm-hmm. and some not-for-profit. Another thing that we're very clear about is that non-profit or vet- veterinarians affiliated with nonprofit organizations are less than 10% of the workforce. And some of those are at zoos and aquariums and not companion animal organizations. So again, we need an ecosystem approach. And so I love seeing models like the pet dental model where it's a for-profit practice that's growing quickly and it helps solve one portion of this because it's a more specialized model. And we are aware of, of folks around the country who are doing this, for example, with surgery, who have decided to be sort of surgery only practices and to try and bring the cost of surgery down by... Focusing there. So I think that you, I don't think there's one model. I don't think there's one magical model that is going to solve this, but I think that there are a variety of programs and models that, when they're taken together, along with other things like different insurance models, different payment models, I think we need a whole bunch of innovation and collaboration to get to the point where we're in a much better spot.
0: Right. It's just all these models working together. To kind of come up with the solution. Yep. So my next question is often a hot topic because I think some people feel that if you can't afford to care for a pet, you shouldn't have one. Like having a pet is a privilege, not a right. What are your thoughts? Oh, this one
1: gets thorny. Um, from the animal welfare industry perspective, rescue groups and shelters, We used to have a lot of conversations about those people. And if they can't afford to take good care of their pet, they shouldn't have one. What I will say I have come to realize, and I think a lot of my comrades in the animal welfare industry have come to realize, is how classist and because class in our country, and especially folks who live in poverty, are often structured along very systemic racial inequities, how racist those comments are. And everyone can benefit from the love and care of a pet. And people all across the income spectrum have pets. So for example, senior citizens, a lot of senior citizens live alone and live on a fixed income. And sometimes that pet is the only source of joy and companionship that they have. Are we really going to tell them that because they can't afford a pet, they don't deserve to have one? That does not feel like a good answer. And just because someone doesn't do pet ownership in the way that I might doesn't mean that pet doesn't have a good life. One of the other narratives that drives me crazy is this narrative where an older pet will be dropped off at the shelter. And the folks who are seeing this intake happen and thinking about trying to to find this animal a new home say, oh my gosh, that's the cruelest thing you could do. How could you have this pet for its entire life? And then just callously abandon it at the shelter when it's old well, you know what, if that dog is a big dog that's 13 or 14, or a little dog that's 15 or 18, or a cat that's 15 or 18, you know what, that family gave it a great life. Pets don't get to that age if they're not living with people that love them and care about them. And in a lot of communities, there are not humane euthanasia options available, let alone affordable. So people are seeing their beloved pet that's had a nice long life, suffer or, or struggle, and they know that something is wrong, and they don't know where else to go. And they hope that if they surrender their pet to the shelter, they're going to get some kind of care or at least a soft end. And judging those people for being terrible pet owners is so wrong, in my opinion. Um, but those narratives are still out there in ways. And I just, you know, I like to think about it from the other perspective or flip it a bit. You are bringing me the 14-year-old large dog who has lived a long, happy, healthy life and is now struggling, I wanna be sure that you have options to be with your dog at the end because this is clearly a loved animal. Um, so I'm not sure that's the answer that, that maybe you were expecting, but those are my thoughts on that subject.
0: No, I think that's right. Like I, I think people don't take a moment to think like that, like flip it on the other side put yourself in their shoes and, and like, just as you were describing with the older animals, they don't get that. They don't get to that age without a whole lot of love. And so I, I, I think that's um, just spot on. Oh, Amy, we're out of time. I don't know why this happens. It's like not enough time and so many more questions I'd love to ask you and and discussions I'd like to talk to you about. Um, but Thank you so much for joining us today. I think it was extremely enlightening. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I may not be the typical guest, but I hope that it provided some additional perspective and some information.
0: I think it absolutely did. So thank you again. Really, we appreciate, I mean, I can say I appreciate your honesty and just your willingness to be courageous and say what you really think. And I think this was just very eye-opening, I think, for our listeners and, and our viewers and so forth. So so thank you, really. Oh, it's my honor. And I'll reiterate if anyone in the audience has
1: ideas about this, we don't have answers, or at least not all the answers. So come find me. I would
0: love to talk. Excellent. Well, this was the final episode of Season 8 of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, but don't be bummed out because Season 9 will definitely be fine and it's coming up. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to and you will be notified when it launches. I'm Dr. Kim Farina and this has been Pause and Reflect with Zoetis.